You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge once again. Dr. Mike Karuchak with you again uh, today on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for joining us once again for the very best in healthcare policy chat radio brought to you by physicians who work all day seeing patients. We are full-time practicing docs, and we do healthcare policy all night. And that's pretty much uh, about as, as much work for one lifetime as you can uh, imagine. Uh, glad to be with you again today. We're going to take a little break. Uh, I think from the usual flow of uh, healthcare policy, we're in a little bit of a, of a lull right now. Uh, the Democratic presidential field has been narrowed a bit. Uh, each candidate is coming up with their own little variant of Medicare for all. Uh, you know, you have the classic Medicare for all from Bernie Sanders, which is you will take your Medicare for all and you will like it. And there will be no keeping your doctor, liking your doctor, any of those things. There are other variations where some folks are talking about a public option, right? That uh, verbiage has come back into the uh, foray. So, uh, you know, there, there's multiple variations there. There's, And I thought about talking about each of those and see what each candidate wants to do. But, uh, you know, all that's going to be rendered irrelevant because we got to wait until the field gets narrowed enough to know exactly what's worth the time to talk about on the air. So I decided – to look at something that's actually uh, a part of my practice uh, as an ear, nose, and throat doctor because I treat acid reflux probably as much as any gastroenterologist does. The, the symptoms of reflux, if you're an ear, nose, and throat doctor, are different. It's not the classic heartburn thing. You know, we see reflux manifest as throat clearing and hoarseness and a lump in the throat and, you know, a lot of symptoms that, that might be uh, the same as cancer symptoms. So we actually spend a fair amount of time, actually a great deal of time, looking at patients and trying to decide is this a sign of cancer or is this just reflux and you know most times we can figure that out pretty well sometimes it's not as clear and you need to do some things to figure that out but uh, be that as it may there have been two major uh, items in the news in recent weeks that have profoundly affected uh, my practice and the practice of every ear nose and throat doctor uh, in terms of how we treat acid reflux, what medicines we use to treat acid reflux. And I think there are some interesting take-home lessons here uh, that are bigger than just the nuts and bolts of you know how you treat disease. I don't want to turn this into a, a, a traditional sort of medical show like the ones you hear on the weekends on talk radio where people call in and say something hurts, what's wrong. Uh, you know, we're not going all the way there, but we're we're getting a little bit away from the the hardcore healthcare policy to talk about some things. So, um, I, as I said, I treat acid reflux. Probably half my patients have reflux as at least a a component of of a, of a multifactorial problem. We see allergies commonly, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, two news stories have come out that have profoundly affected how we do things. The first. Uh, you've probably heard before, and this has to do with uh, Zantac or ranitidine, right? The the generic uh, uh, name of that drug, which is you know one of the oldest and regarded as safest uh, medicines, also one of the least expensive medicines uh, in a category called H2 blockers, histamine two receptor blockers that have been around for decades uh, to treat acid reflux. They're available over the counter, widely regarded as safe until uh, this. Headline came out with uh, that, that maybe some some production lines making generic ranitidine uh, and maybe even uh, labels Antac uh, may have a a probable human carcinogen 
called NDMA. I'm not going to decipher what NDMA means. It's a bunch of stuff we don't have time to talk about. Um, but this substance called NDMA is classified as, and, and remember this phrase, a probable human carcinogen. Probable human carcinogen found in some ranitidine products. Now, NDMA, this probable human carcinogen, is is a, a known environmental contaminant. We know it's in water, uh, meat products, dairy products, uh, and the levels that they're finding in the ranitidine medicine, the pills, capsules, uh, is, is about the same as what's normally found in water, meat, dairy products, that kind of thing. Nonetheless, uh, the uh, the FDA has administered a what they call a distribution halt on uh, generic ranitidine. So if it's uh, if it's out there, they're going to stop making more, but they're not going to pull the stuff that's already on the shelves off. Uh, they did do that once uh, last year for a class of high blood pressure medicines called uh, angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, they did do a full recall of that, pulled it off the shelves, I think, and told patients, you know, if you're taking it, call your doctor, get another drug, et cetera, et cetera. They have not gone that far with ranitidine this time. So a distribution halt means stop making it, uh, and Novartis, who makes generic ranitidine, has stopped making it. Sanofi, who makes brand names Antac, has said, nope, our stuff's good. We're obviously going to investigate extensively, but we're not – uh, we're not doing this. You know, our our medicines are safe. Uh, this is why you buy brand name in the first place. Is sort of the uh, you know implication, and so you know it's still available. But uh, I'm getting lots of questions, friends, colleagues, patients, of course. Uh, now going, well, gosh, you know, we've spent the last ten or fifteen years getting people off of other medicines and onto Zantac, and we're going to get to that issue in a minute. Uh, you know, getting people off of Prevacid and on to Zantac. So now all of a sudden Zantac's the problem. So now what do we do? So it's caused a lot of questions. And so, you know, even without the radio show to talk about, it, you know, just as a doc, we, we researched this and talked about it amongst our partners in the practice and acknowledged, look, we don't have to send out a letter to tell folks if you're on Zantac, come off of it. Uh, no one's, uh, you know, panicking at at that level yet. So, uh, so that's fine uh, as far as it goes. But let's go back and retrace our steps a little bit. Remember, I told you to remember the term probable human carcinogen. Probable human carcinogen. I'll turn around for a minute and grab my other iPad here because I've got a table pulled up uh, that is that sort of goes through what uh, what what does it mean? What are the definitions? of a, a probable human carcinogen. What's the spectrum? And I'm trying to unlock my iPad here. So here we go. Okay. So yeah, so the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, I-A-R-C, which is a part of the World Health Organization, has a set of carcinogen classifications that range from group one, which is probable carcinogen to human, all the way down to group four, which is probably not carcinogenic. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a spectrum, although, you know, never do they actually use the word safe, and uh, that's probably a medical legal thing. They just say, well, it's either carcinogenic or it's, it's more carcinogenic or less carcinogenic. But it's important to understand, and this is maybe the biggest single take-home lesson of the hour here, is that the classification is based on the strength of evidence – of the substance's carcinogenicity, not the potency of the carcinogen. Uh, 
right? So a group one is not necessarily a more potent carcinogen than a group four. It just means that the evidence that it's carcinogenic at any level uh, is is stronger. Now, I hope I explained that well. I mean, it's it's not saying that group one, if you get exposed to a nanogram of group one from 10 miles away, that you're instantly going to develop cancer. It just means that the stuff in group one has more evidence. So what's in group one? Group one is carcinogenic to humans. Includes smoking, of course. Um, exposure to sun, of course. Right, we get those. Um, alcoholic beverages, we get that, right? We've known tobacco and alcohol are known carcinogens. And processed meats, which was added fairly recently. Um, group 2A, which is the probable carcinogen, right? This is where NDMA, the potential contaminant in Zantac falls. So what are the other things in that group? Well, emissions from high temperature frying, right? This is where they say, you know, don't sear your meat on the grill because the char is potentially carcinogenic. That's a group 2A. Red meat, period, you know, no matter how much you cook it. Uh, working as a hairdresser, you know, exposed to, you know, dyes and, you know, stuff you do to get a perm and all that kind of stuff. Um, and even steroids, oral, oral steroids are in that group. So that's group 2A. Now, getting down to stuff that's, that's not a probable carcinogen but a possible carcinogen what's in that group coffee weird gasoline car exhaust pickled vegetables so and a group three uh, are things we don't know that are carcinogenic or not tea is in group three static magnetic fields are in group three fluorescent lighting um, polyethylene your plastic grocery bags are group three and then there's really nothing in group four. There's there only one chemical has ever been placed in group four, which is something called caprolactam, which is used to make synthetic fibers. It means nothing to me, and I doubt it means much to you. So it's basically by classifying this Zantac contaminant as a probable carcinogen, we're talking about stuff that is in the frying, red meat, steroids, hairdresser chemical, that kind of, uh, you know, that those are the other things that are in that category. Again, classified according to strength of evidence, not potency as a carcinogen. So, you know, know that when they say, hey, this is a probable carcinogen, exactly what they're talking about because the definitions matter. And when these things get distilled down in the news, you don't get the subtleties. Now, why does all this matter? Well, it matters because of the next drug that we talk about all the time, which happens to be uh, proton pump inhibitors, right? This is the stuff that we have used for reflux for the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, they had just come out when I was in residency training when, uh, you know, um, uh, omeprazole came out, right? Prilosec was the, is, the, is the brand name, and that had just come out a, a couple of years before I started my training in otolaryngology. And, you know, they were inherited as miracle drugs, and they, and they were, and, and you can even regard that they still are. But over the last 10 years, there have been increasing concerns about using PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, the, the, the Nexium uh, class, the Prevacid class, the, the, you know, the, uh, the Prilosec class, um, for long-term reflux control, you know, one year, two years, three years or longer. And a long list of potential concerns, uh, the biggest one being dementia. And, you know, with the rising incidence of dementia in the United States, you had to ask yourself, well, gosh, is this because we're putting tons of people on PPIs? Uh, there was other things, pneumonia, osteoporosis was a big one. We all bought into that one because you figure if you raise the pH of your stomach, get rid of the acid, you can't absorb calcium from your diet. Uh, and so, you know, then you're basically diet poor in calcium no matter what you're eating. Could you get osteoporosis? Yeah, it's intuitive. Sure you could. And we all bought into that. So I've spent the last 10 years or longer in my practice until recently um, trying to get people off of 
PPIs once we get their reflux symptoms controlled and get them down to, guess what, Zantac. So uh, recently a study came out, came out a couple of months ago, published in the Gastroenterology. That's the journal for GI doctors. Um, very, very impressive study which demonstrates that none of these associations have any statistical backup. That all of these you know, loose observations regarding dementia, osteoporosis, kidney disease, heart disease, all that stuff, none of those concerns stand up to statistical analysis in a large patient population. We're talking a big patient population. We're talking 17,598 patients followed over three years with a control group and a placebo group. No difference. No difference in the incidence of dementia, pneumonia, uh, fracture, uh, kidney disease, diabetes, all these things that we were worried about it turns out none of them are true. And the paper appropriately quotes, you know, the classic quote from epidemiology that association is not causation. And so now uh, we have this situation where, uh, you know, everything's been turned on its ear. And uh, we'll get uh, that to the second segment. Uh, you're, t- uh, you're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Dr. Mike Karuchak back here with you. Uh, glad to be uh, with you again in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. So in the uh, last segment, uh, we were discussing uh, a couple of uh, issues regarding um, medications uh, and, and things that had changed, the uh, treatment of acid reflux. And uh, the long and the short of that, uh, probably excessively long discourse, is that uh, the the principles on which we had been guiding, uh, you know, prescription therapy for acid reflux in the last several weeks have been completely turned upside down, completely turned on its ear. Right for years and years and years, we said, uh, you know, Zantac was good, proton pump inhibitors like Prevacid were bad, and uh, all of a sudden now it's it's the other way around. Right, all of the safety concerns about. Uh, you know, proton pump inhibitors like Prilosec and Prevacid and Dexalon and all these other ones have all been uh, statistically proven to be unfounded. And uh, the flip side is all of a sudden Zantac, ranitidine, uh, now is feared to have a potentially carcinogenic contaminant. And we discussed all the ins and outs as to whether that's really valid or not. But uh, now all of a sudden uh, we're doing the opposite. Now people are worried about the drug that we had regarded as safe for years. And the drug we worried about for years has now been statistically proven to be safe. Uh, you know, and, and what it comes down to again is, uh, you know, the people who were crying wolf over proton pump inhibitors are now potentially crying wolf over uh, Zantac, over ranitidine. Uh, and so, you know, as a physician, we hear this stuff all the time. We do. And and it, it, sometimes it may appear that we don't react strongly enough. We don't follow the media's hype over these things. We don't run out and radically change the way we do things overnight uh, because we've seen these things, these warnings and uh, things come and go. We've seen recommendations get turned upside down where what you did for a long time all of a sudden is not what you're supposed to do anymore. And uh, as a result, you know, we tend to react fairly slowly. And it may look like we're Luddites. It may look like you can't teach us new tricks. It may look like we're stuck in our old ways. Uh, and uh, this was something that I learned from uh, a man named Dr. Fred McConnell, who hired me into Atlanta in 1995 when I was young and freshly trained and thought I had all the answers and was smarter than everybody else because my training was so fresh and new and that, you know, there was, you know, I had new ideas that ran counter to all of the old ideas. And uh, and so, yeah, Dr. Max said, just take it easy. You know, a lot of the stuff's been around for a long time. It's been very successful. Uh, you know, don't get so full of yourself and full of all of your new ideas without giving the old ones a chance to show why they've been around for so long. And so, um, you know, and, and why am I going into this? It, it circles back to, you know, health information technology and electronic medical records and why it is that doctors may have appeared to have not wanted to adapt it as fast as the law made us do it. Uh, and history has proven us to be on the right side. Uh, that the rapid adoption of medical records has caused a mess, it has caused harm, it has killed patients, it has harmed patients. And, you know, in looking at the flip-flopping of recommendations uh, on drugs, you see that, you know, the experts don't always have all the answers. Uh, the experts aren't always right. And, you know, you have to take your uh, street knowledge of medicine and humanity and uh, use that to temper all of the things that, Come down the road. So that's the conclusion of my long-winded stuff on 
on drugs, changing recommendations, and, and, and why it is that is, as physicians, as the final guardian of the, of the welfare of our patients, that we, we look at the broad picture. Uh, and we don't. Uh, we, we tend to have very dampened actions because we've seen what happens. We know what the future is. Uh, it may bring with things that appear to be very certain, and all of a sudden aren't. Uh, and so, just something to think about. So, let's switch topics. We have nine, eight and a half minutes left in the segment, and uh, and I want to flip to something else and circle back to. I rustle my papers here. Um, a little bit of this Medicare for all thing again, because there was a couple of. Thoughts I left unexpressed the last time we talked, and we were talking about Bernie Sanders and Medicare for All. So I'm going to play you two clips back-to-back. The first is uh, I played it a few weeks ago. Uh, this was from the last Democratic debate uh, with Bernie Sanders uh, talking about um, not Medicare for All. Uh, so uh, here, here we go. Can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for All will be as good as the benefits that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate? Well, two things. They will be better because Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all. You don't know that, Second Bernie. of all. We'll come to you in a second. I, I don't know when I wrote the damn bill. Okay, fine. So we talked about the arrogance of Bernie Sanders uh, in that little clip uh, last time. We, we talked about this sort of monolithic, arrogant response that just says Medicare for all is perfect. It's good for everyone. There are no other relevant questions. And I know this because I wrote the damn bill. Now, that question was specifically about unions that had uh, had negotiated outstanding Cadillac-type health plans over several decades as a part of their you know, agreed-upon labor agreements. Uh, they even gave up money in order to get better health care benefits. Uh, and uh, these uh, comments from the president of the AFL-CIO on Fox News a couple of weeks ago directly contradict what Bernie Sanders just said. So here we go. But there has to be a role for the hard-fought, high-quality plans that we've negotiated. Look, it's just unfair to say to somebody, you've sacrificed over the last 40 years. You've given up wages. You've negotiated a good health care plan. And now we're going to ask you to take 50 percent of the health care plan that you negotiated. If there isn't some way for us to have our plans integrated into the system, then we would have a tough time supporting it. Okay, that's Richard Trunka, head of the AFL-CIO on Fox News Sunday on September 1st, saying, look, basically, you know, Bernie was wrong. Uh, you know, you can't just apply a monolithic concept to a complex healthcare system and expect to know all the answers. So once again, circling back to, you know, Bernie Sanders' sort of arrogance and, and monolithic approach to Medicare for all. Uh, and, and it goes back to, you know, what Bernie Sanders likes to talk about when he talks about is, is health care a right, right? Medicare for all is sort of based on this concept that health care is a right and it's a right for everyone. And we've, we went over this question, I don't know, probably a year, year and a half ago, maybe two years ago when, um, Tom Price was getting confirmed, uh, as a, as a cabinet member and Bernie Sanders was putting him through the ringer over health care being a right. And we talked about that you, you need to know if you're going to defend, you know, limiting government's role in health care, you need to have a solid intellectual defense uh, against this question. And we went over things about this about a year or so ago, I think, maybe longer. Uh, but I, I've, I've refined the argument a little bit 
since Medicare for all based on health care as a right has, you know, come back full circle and is now being offered as the successor to Obamacare. So remember, it's a gotcha question. Is health care a right? If you say yes, then Bernie says that's it. You accept Medicare for all. There's no other way to make to, to, to fulfill government's obligation to uh, to provide this as a right. If you say no, then you're a cold-hearted SOB and you look terrible if all you say is no. Uh, or you try to come up with some complex answer, um, like I watched Ted Cruz do at this uh, CNN town hall February two years ago. Uh, the problem is if you're going to launch into that complex answer, you better damn well know what you're doing and what you're talking about. So that's what I'm going to spend the next couple of minutes talking about. So I went to the Internet, of course, and researched the concept of human rights. How are human rights talked about? How are human rights classified? And the bottom line is the literature is a mess because everybody who writes something on it has some sort of political axe to grind. And so they try to, uh, you know, build their version of absolute truth to support their political views. But if you look at enough sources and try to approach it with a rational mind, you you realize two things. Uh, There are two kinds of rights. One is basic rights, classic rights. These are the rights that we expect every civilized society to uphold, Uh, the rights to life, liberty, property, privacy, uh, potentially add free speech to that. Now, all these rights have in common that they impose limits, uh, a ceiling, if you will, on what government can do. If they do anything to limit your right to any of those things, they violate your right to life, liberty, property, potentially privacy, and, and, and free speech. Uh, it's a ceiling. It's limits on government, not a floor, but a ceiling. And and so that's pretty easy to understand. The other thing all of these things have in common is that to preserve your rights to these things does not require the government to expend any significant resources. Now, you can argue they have to expend a few, right? They have to have law enforcement in place to protect your right to life if, you know, a ne'er-do-well comes along who wants to hurt you. That's the obligation of the police to protect you, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some activity and and resource allocation to do that. But it pales in comparison to the other kind of right, which is economic rights. So this is now things that you not only have a right to, but you have a right to them being paid for, right? This is where health care may or may not be a right, but Bernie Sanders says health care is an economic right, whether he realizes that or not is you are fulfilling your economic right to health care by having a Medicare for all or an Obamacare with a subsidized plan or that sort of thing where the government steps in and has a very heavy financial role in your health care. So now what are economic rights? Health care is a, an example of an economic right. Education, employment, a minimum wage for a minimum standard of living, welfare, that kind of stuff. These kinds of rights are, are a, not a ceiling on the government but a floor, right? Each of these rights implies a requirement of the government to put infrastructure in place to not only give you access to these things, but to pay for them as well. Now, these are not obligations of a civilized society. A civilized society may choose to provide some or all of these things, but it's not black and white. You can provide a little bit of food or you can provide a lot of food. You can provide you know, bread and water or you can provide steak and lobster. Uh, you know, for health care, you can provide simple basic access or you can provide transplant care. Uh, you know, you know, a, a, a minimum wage can be $5 an hour or $50 an hour. So there's all of these, there's a spectrum here. And so then when you circle back to health care as a right, is health care a 
classic basic right or is it an economic right? And obviously the bar, if it's an economic right, is obviously far higher. So let's look at an example. Let's look at the right to bear arms, right? We, you know, we have a Second Amendment in the Constitution, whether you like it or not, that says the rights of the people to hold and bear arms should not be infringed. But no one at the NRA would ever suggest that you can walk into a gun store and say, because of the right to bear arms, you're going to give me a gun for free, right? We have the right to bear arms as a basic right, not an economic right. And so this may be the way to answer the health care is a right question. We can say health care is a basic right, right? The, health, the government can't surround the hospital with troops and, and stop you from, uh, to, from entering the hospital for care, but it's not an economic right. You can't walk into the hospital and demand care simply because you exist, although you can do that in the emergency room. So just a, a something to think about is the, the splitting of basic right versus a more sophisticated answer to the question, is health care a right? You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, foundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Karuchak, your host today. Thanks very much for being with us in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Uh, in the first segment, we were getting pretty deep into uh, a couple of different issues. We started with uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's um, untimely uh, death uh, by apparent suicide in a high security prison and how could that possibly happen relating that to you know when the government does anything they're going to screw it up uh, with a combination of uh, incompetence and corruption uh, we then started another thread talking about Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all and I think you can see where the relationship's going and, and we've played the clip twice already I'm not going to fill the whole show up by playing the same clip over and over again but we replayed Bernie Sanders dropped the microphone moment from the second debate when he was challenging Tim Ryan, and he said, I wrote the damn bill, and we got a bunch of applause, and uh, and we've been sort of analyzing the guts of that. And the first thing that we said was uh, that um, – What's the first thing? That we, oh, I know what it was. God, I'm losing my mind here. Uh, that 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 the, I wrote the damn bill. That moment was actually a very clever shell game uh, that that Bernie Sanders was playing, and that he was he substituted. Uh, Tim Ryan accused him of not understanding the relationship between Medicare for All and some of these really sweet deal union based labor union based health plans. 
that's a valid point, and I don't think Bernie Sanders knows that. But but Bernie Sanders turned it around and said, "You're wrong because I know what's in my bill. I wrote the damn bill." And of course, you get the applause, and now we have the T-shirts and the bumper stickers and God knows what else from the Bernie Sanders campaign that has rebooted. Apparently, his campaign based only on he's going to be a one-issue candidate from now on. It's going to be Medicare for all because it's really the only, if you'll pardon the pun, Trump card that he's got to play. So let's get on to a couple of other points about this. I wrote the damn bill comment because I think it's very, very revealing of the arrogance of Bernie Sanders. And and don't get me wrong. I like Bernie Sanders as a politician because at least he's honest. He says he's socialist. He says what he means. He means what he says. Uh, he makes no effort to, uh, you know, be somebody he's not. He's not like Hillary Clinton and a lot of the Democrat uh, uh, politicians that, you know, go and, you know, imitate the accent of their audience or try to pretend they're somebody they're not or try to, you know, change colors to match their surroundings. Uh, they, you know, Bernie Sanders is who he is and it doesn't matter who he's talking to or where he's going. And, and for that, I, I do respect him at least a little bit. But I think we also have to, you know, call balls and strikes uh, how we see him. And I think we have a big problem here with with his ignorance uh, about unforeseen consequences and his arrogance regarding unforeseen consequences. Uh, what is telling about that dialogue between Ryan and Bernie was that uh, not only is Bernie not aware of what the union benefits are and what the union health care plans look like, he doesn't care. Um, he has no recognition of the potential for unforeseen consequences. He is enamored with his own intellect. He is enamored with his plan of Medicare for all. He describes it in broad, overly simplistic strokes of the brush. It's comprehensive. It covers all health care needs, right? He used those two descriptors. Comprehensive covers all health care needs. As if it's very simple to take 330 million Americans and just lump them under one plan and expect by saying something really simple-minded like, yeah, it covers everything. Well, what is everything? Well, I don't know, but whatever it is, we're going to cover it. Uh, with no thought about what it's going to cost, who's going to pay for it, how you finance it, and you know, raising taxes on the 1% is not going to do it, right? If you do the math, you could confiscate all of the wealth and assets of the 1% and still not be able to pay for Medicare for all. So it's just a, it, it, the arrogance of that bothers me. And uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here in a little, a little bit and introduce something very new. The, this whole idea of, of Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all, you know, I mean, Bernie even kind of looks like a mad scientist sometimes. You know, his hair's all disheveled. You know, he, he wears very plain clothes that don't fit very well. And those aren't – that doesn't make him a bad politician. He could be fully capable of being president with respect to the fit of his clothes. It doesn't matter. Uh, except it does create kind of an image, and and I got to thinking you have you have a political mad scientist with a monster, Medicare for all, and it reminds me of the Frankenstein story. Now I know that Halloween is still a couple of months away, and that may sound crazy, but bear with me. I've run this idea past about a half a dozen people that I respect, and they all say it's a great idea. So before you write me off as crazy as Frankenstein, hear me out here and let me walk you through this. Now I'm not talking about Young Frankenstein, the movie, although that's one of my favorite movies of all time. 
or any of the, you know, Hollywood renditions of Frankenstein with the flat top monster and the bolts in his neck and his hands out going, that kind of thing. I'm talking about the original novel written by one Mary Shelley, um, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. And, you know, you have to go back, and I went back and, and read as much of the book, reread as much of the book as I could get my hands on to be sure I sort of had my literary facts right here before I sort of went off on this tangent. But hear me out. The story begins with a young teenage aged Frankenstein who goes off to university um, having studied some science, but mostly alchemists. Right, alchemy, right? This alternate science that comes from many, many moons ago before a scientific enlightenment. That's who thought they could turn lead into gold and all this kind of stuff. And he reads all of this in his high school years, basically, goes off to university, challenges his professors with his knowledge, and by and large, not totally, but by and large is unimpressed with some of his faculty, not all, and fancies himself to be smarter than they are or at least more gifted than they are. And so, uh, you know, he really redoubles his interest in alchemy over traditional science, which was now gaining momentum by the time of, 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 of Frankenstein's character, um, and becomes obsessed with the reanimation of dead tissue, right? Creating the monster, sewing all the parts together and striking it with lightning and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he becomes very enamored with himself, he becomes very arrogant, um, out of proportion to even his talent, and he was talented, a very talented character, um, but really you know, regards himself as capable of not only reanimating dead tissue but raising ghosts from the dead and devils from the dead and all this kind of stuff. Fancies that any creature he creates will sort of worship him as a god, as their creator. The way God created man, he's going to create – uh, other living things and become sort of a god in his own right. So tremendous levels of arrogance and an obsession with his project. So does this sound familiar? Does this parallel what Bernie Sanders is doing with Medicare for All? Uh, you know, an, an arrogance that says, I don't really care what the rest of the system looks like. I don't really care about history. I don't really care about who this is going to help, who this is going to hurt, or any of the unforeseen consequences. Right? We are just going to wipe the slate clean on healthcare in America and replace it with a fully government-run program. And it's going to work great because I'm Bernie Sanders and I say it's going to work great. It's going to work great because we're, we're just not going to think it through. We're just going to step off the cliff and do it. And like the teenage Dr. Frankenstein, he has no, uh, no recognition of unintended consequences or that anything can go wrong. Well, then what happens? Well, it's interesting to actually read these chapters from the original Mary Shelley novel. Um, because the moment the creature is created, and I mean before the creature has a chance, the, the, the monster, that's really called the monster, has a chance to do anything, hurt anyone, do anything, um, Frankenstein is horrified by his monster. The minute he opens an eye, opens his eyes, he takes a deep breath, and he moves his limbs, twitches something on the table there. And the minute that happens... He's disgusted, he's horrified, he's in that, you know, has that, you know, what have I done kind of moment. 
Now, there's something odd there because the creature, the, the, the monster hadn't done anything yet. I mean, that's like being horrified by your child the minute it's born just because, you know, it takes a breath and moves a limb. You know, it doesn't make any sense unless there's something deeper going on here. And sure enough, uh, you know, bad things happen once this monster is created, right? This, the monster goes out and murders Victor Frankenstein's brother, leads to the death of two other people, one other victim that Frankenstein murders and another person who's mistakenly convicted for one of the uh, uh, Frankenstein murders. And, uh, and, and, so, and so it goes. Uh, the, mon- the monster eventually confronts Victor Frankenstein um, and oddly enough speaks very eloquently. Apparently this monster is very educated. He knows French. He's sort of picked up all this in his, his uh, travels. Um, but then he makes um, Victor Frankenstein an ultimatum and says, make me a mate or I will destroy you. And Frankenstein initially agrees, but then on the second time around, finally it occurs to this allegedly brilliant person that he better think about unforeseen consequences if he's going to build another one. And says, you know, this one might be even more violent than the first, or the two of them might breed a whole race of monsters because you've created a male, you've created a female, right? I mean, the creation story from the Bible, this is the book of Genesis all over again, except it's the scary way instead of the good way, right? He creates the first monster, which is Adam. Adam asks for a mate, right? You know, the monster asks for a mate. But then um, Frankenstein has second thoughts, and, and just about the time he's got all the parts put together, um, the original Frankenstein monster comes in. Victor decides this isn't such a good idea and destroys the the, the bride of Frankenstein. Right, that's where this all those movies came from, um, and destroys the second monster right in front of the first. And the monster swears to get revenge on Frankenstein. Says, "I'll be with you on your wedding night." Sure enough, you know, months later, he's married. He, the fr- monster's there. He kills his wife, and in the end, the monster never actually dies without dragging out the plot too far. Um, and so the, the, the parallels are there. They're unmistakable. So what we're faced with now is the mad scientist Bernie Sanders has his monster on the table. All the parts are sewn together. If he's elected president, lightning strikes the monster and he comes to life. And I think the outcome will be just as the novel Frankenstein predicts, that uh, that we think it's great or some people think it's great up until the moment it's created and then the longer time passes after that moment of creation the worse things get and i think that's where we're going if you look at uh, you know the the prison issue and sort of bring those together you know here's the fundamental problem with medicare for all the folks who think the va's great and the folks that think medicare for all is great fail to recognize a basic point of human nature. We humans, wonderful as we are, we need accountability. We need incentives in order to make things work. The mistake of Medicare for all is the same mistake as the VA, the National Health Service, and the Canadian system, which is the belief that all you need to do is bring patients together, doctors and nurses together, put them in a building with a pile of resources, and the result just happens. And that's not it. That's like the difference between a living creature, and a pile of chemicals that represent the same composition of as, as a human. It doesn't work. You know, life is not just a, a pile of chemicals that you mix together in a pot and heat it up. There's something more. That's the difference between free market medicine and Medicare for all. Medicare for all is a monster. 
You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, .org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host this week. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much for continuing to uh, to hang out with us this hour. Um, we were reading some articles. Uh, this is sort of like a journal club here, I suppose. And we were, we were reviewing this article that talked about the six things that are wrong with hospital medicine. They're really six steps that take the hospitalist specialty from potential greatness down to merely a vehicle for financial survival. And that's the opinion of the, the author of the article who is himself a hospitalist. So the six steps, we started to talk about them in the prior segment. We'll review them again briefly. Step one, um, you hire a bunch of young, hungry docs that have student loans to pay off and are ready to work really, really super hard. And then you put them on a relatively fixed salary, and then you give them as many patients to take care of as they can humanly handle. That's step one. Step two, the, the doctors themselves respond by offloading as much of the work as possible to uh, to specialists. So, you know, if there's a pneumonia, you get a pulmonologist or an infectious disease. If there's renal failure, you get the nephrologist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, if there's sinusitis, they call me, the ENT. Uh, so that's step two is to, is to, you know, add on to the, the, uh, specialist consultants. Step three is to start, uh, massaging your documentation to make papers, papers, patients look as uh, as sick as possible on paper, which leads to where we are now, which is step four, uh, which is the fourth pillar, which is now uh, where uh, you start gaming with things like observation status versus inpatient status. And, uh, you know, if you can use improved documentation to uh, make patients, again, look as sick as possible on paper so that your diagnoses change and so your, your, um, your case mix index changes. And so that is step four. Step five is now where utilization review nurses enter the picture and, uh, and start looking to get fixed DRG patients out of the hospital as soon as possible. Uh, again, because, you know, the fixed DRG, as I understand it, and my understanding is very rudimentary, means you get a fixed payment, which means once you get the money, you want to discharge the patient as soon as possible to reduce the overhead. Uh, and then finally, the last step comes completely from without, which is the quality measures that CMS imposes on everyone. And now you've got to do everything that you can to sort of live within these quality measures, even if it, you know, creates frank distortions in the documentation in terms of how well or how sick a patient really is. So six steps. And again, why do these steps exist? They exist because hospitals live off of third-party payer payments. And, you know, and so now 
you know, the hospitalists above all. I mean, you know, it, this article made me feel for these folks. It's not their fault. It's not the hospital's fault. It is the system within which we all must exist. And, you know, we all have to do things similar to this in one way or another. It was just a very interesting article published in Kevin MD. Um, you know, what was this, uh, last September actually just ran across it. Um, that is, uh, that is so interesting about that. So there's Journal Club article number one. And again, the theme of all of this, these articles I found is how third-party payer distorts every single part of medicine. You know, we talk about, you know, certain things, <clears throat> you know, primary care and information technology and, you know, we talk about all these things. Um, you know, there's a lot of other nooks and crannies in the system that, that we don't have time to give a lot of attention to, hospitalists being one of them. And so we'll talk about a few of these. So here's an article on the opioid ep- epidemic um, and what you might not know about the op- opioid ep- epidemic is that uh, in 2016, uh, the CDC, in response to the opioid epidemic, uh, came out with some very uh, draconian guidelines, at least according to this author, about you know when you can prescribe opioids, how long you can prescribe opioids, who can prescribe them. I hate that word opioids; they're narcotics for crying out loud. Uh, uh, but uh, you know what were the rules for for um, prescribing narcotics? And uh, you know we don't. I, I'm not exposed to this very much. I give very very short courses of narcotics after surgery, um, and I do give less now than I used to. I used to give thirty. Hydrocodone, Tylenol pills. Now I give twenty, and if it's a smaller surgery, even fifteen or even as little as twelve. Um, and I think that's worked out pretty well. I think there's probably a lot fewer of my patients with you know half-consumed uh, bottles of uh, you know, Tylenol and hydrocodone sitting in their cabin, which is a good thing. Uh, but I didn't do that in response to any forced guideline. I just did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. But apparently, docs and other specialties who you know prescribe narcotics under different conditions, uh, you know, were really sort of pushed into doing that. And in, um, uh, you know, in, in, in March of, uh, of uh, this year, the, the, the CDC received a letter from 300 medical experts, uh, including former drug czars from the prior administration, saying that the 2016 guidelines had become a tool for insurers to deny opioid coverage, right? Here comes the third-party distortion, as if these guidelines weren't enough. Now you've got insurers denying opioid coverage, and for doctors to undertreat or even drop patients that they have on narcotics. And as a result, you know, there were a lot of patients really hurting and they were going into narcotic withdrawal. So now what happens? Well, now doctors get a warning, right? Again, it's always the doctor's fault um, that you can't taper opioids, opioids, see, look at me, narcotics too soon. And so now you got another set of guidelines that countermand the original set of guidelines. And, you know, in reading the article, you know, some people seem to like this. You know, to me, it's confusing. It's kind of like, okay, you know, what are, what are my legal responsibilities, uh, you know, as a narcotic prescriber? And, you know, once again, third-party interference from government and insurers, you know, at the very least what it does is it deprives the physician of autonomy, it deprives the physician of the ability to use clinical judgment to know when 
opioids, opioids, listen to me, narcotics are appropriate, and when narcotics aren't appropriate, how much, how often, when, for how long, you know, all that is now, uh, you know, taken away from us and our ability to make those judgments is bad. And remember, it was regulations that started this whole thing in the first place, right? Doctors just didn't start deciding arbitrarily years ago to start over-prescribing narcotics. This all came down because of, uh, you know, JCAH that accredits hospitals, the pain scale, and, you know, the, the first first lecture that we got, you know, years ago that we weren't giving enough uh, medications to patients for pain. So, you know, this is what happens with third-party interference. First, they pushed us to give too much narcotic. Then they threatened us legally to reduce the amount of narcotics. And now the pendulum's back again saying, oh, no, don't taper too soon or you're going to hurt somebody. This is what happens with these rapidly flipping guidelines back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and, and, you know, in the end, we're, we're deprived of our ability to make judgments. If they would just have left us alone, none of this would have happened. Not that uh, narcotic addiction is not a significant problem. It is. It always has been. Uh, now the problem is far worse because of third-party interference with the practice of medicine. That's that. Now let's look at another sort of section of the healthcare system that we haven't really talked about very much at all, which has to do with medical research. Medical research that is largely carried out at our hallowed, revered academic institutions. And this article actually starts off picking on my medical school, alma, alma mater, Duke University. So it's, you know, with some sadness that I report this, except to say that it's happening in other places besides Duke. And the, and the article just appropriately says that, you know, Duke is just the latest uh, in, a, in a long string of this. But this is the Duke settling a... Uh, doctor data lawsuit for $112.5 million, so a really, really high price tag. Um, but that there was, uh, you know, a, a one particular physician researcher that was fudging data and, uh, you know, fudging data a lot. Uh, it, it seems they had a whistleblower. Um, and uh, and they're going to receive a significant amount of the 112 uh, million dollars, um, but you know the the data here are a little scary. Uh, that uh, you know the study was on the effects um, of pollutants, air pollution on the lungs in a in a mouse model, and that um, you know Duke had won some 50 NIH grants from you know, well not just the NIH Environmental Protection Agency, other government agencies, and apparently the data that were in these things were. Um, uh, fraudulent data. And, you know, it, and Duke's not the only one that's got this, uh, you know, fraudulent data problem. The, uh, the, the article, you know, has, says there's other ones. In 2017, Brigham and Women's had to pay the government $10 million um, because three stem cell scientists um, manipulated and falsified information. Columbia University in New York City had one for $9.5 million. So, uh, you know, it's not just one institution. It's several institutions, and, you know, this article mentions three counting Duke. Um, but again, it's a third-party payer problem. It's not exactly the same because it's not insurance, but you have a situation where researchers are, are dependent on a, a benefactor for the money, and they end up sort of working in one project and one project only. <clears throat> and if the well runs dry on the validity of that project, then they're in a terrible ethical bind. 
because if they just come out and say, you know what, I've been working on this project five years, ten years, and you know what, it's just not panning out. You know, there's there's nothing here to find. It's a dead end. Uh, you know, their career's over because if they lose their NIH grant, they lose their job, as I understand it. And so, you know, what's a what's a PhD researcher to do? You know, you have to start over again in somebody else's lab with no grant and you know minimal salary. I mean, it's you know we've set up a system here, you know, where you know I'm not saying the players aren't at fault, but I'm I, I'm saying I, I recognize their ethical dilemma of that you know you do one project, you rely on grants, you have no other income stream, and <clears throat> if that runs dry, <clears throat> excuse me. Then you know you're you're in a it's it's a terrible a terrible ethical dilemma. These folks are are their entire career is based on one scientific hypothesis, one project, and uh, you know again you know we've got a problem where government involvement has distorted things so badly that there's a problem. Okay, so we've got uh, a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about uh, wellness programs. All right, here's another sort of nook and cranny that we've never really gone into, but uh, wellness programs. We're talking about workplace wellness programs, right, where your employer offers you financial incentives to exercise more, to eat better, to do all these things. And on the surface, it sounds like a good idea. And In fact, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, had very, very generous incentives. You could apparently put uh, you know, incentives in place worth up to 30% of the cost of your health insurance, uh, you know, which ended up being, you know, hundreds or even thousands of dollars of, of benefits, um, from, uh, you know, doing, you know, participating in one of these wellness programs. So, um, this is published in Kaiser Health News, uh, April 16th of last month, and they, Finally looked at, uh, they, they had a large study cohort. They used BJ's Wholesale Club, and they, I guess they've got 160 stores. So they put 20 store outlets on a wellness program, and 140 stores they left as they were without a wellness program. And after 18 months, it turned out, yeah, the, the workers participating in the wellness programs did self-report healthier behavior, but those efforts did not result in any difference in health measures. You know, blood sugar was no better. Um, you know, uh, the money spent on health care didn't change. Job performance didn't change. Longevity in the position didn't change. And so, you know, we've got another situation where the data show that something that seems like a good idea does not appear to be based on this. Now, there's some shortcomings in the study, and we're running out of time, so uh, we're done. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.